0: It's important to acknowledge the good in other people's faiths and the good that people do motivated
1: by their faith can Christians and Muslims get along in America that's the question we asked Princeton law professor Robert George and Zaytuna College president Hamza Youssef at the San Francisco Jazz Center this spring George and Youssef who are good friends, believe that unity across religious backgrounds is not only possible, but also necessary, and their friendship serves as an embodiment of that belief. Over the course of their conversation, moderated by Trey Stevens, principal at Founders Fund, they discuss unresolved tensions, the role of religion in civic life, and a potential path forward.
2: Thank you to all of you for coming, and thanks to Toby for the, the gracious introduction. Um, the goal here for setting is just to introduce our, um, our panelists, our speakers, uh, and then we'll dive into a set of questions, and as Toby said, we'll open up to uh, audience Q&A after that. So first I'd like to introduce Hamza Yusuf. He's one of the world's uh, leading proponents for classical learning in Islam, and is the co-founder and president of Zaytuna College, which is just across the bridge here in Berkeley. Um, He's also the advisor to the Center for Islamic Studies at Berkeley's Graduate Theological Union. He serves as Vice President for the Global Center for Guidance and Renewal, uh, which was founded and is currently presided over by Sheikh Abdullah bin Bayah, one of the top jurists and masters of Islamic sciences in the world. For almost a decade, Hamza has has been consecutively ranked as the the Western world's most influential Islamic scholar, Um, by the 500 Most Influential Muslims, which is edited by a university professor of mine, John Esposito, and Ibrahim Kaleen. Robert George is an American legal scholar, political philosopher, and public intellectual who serves as the McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence at Princeton University. He lectures on constitutional interpretation, civil liberties, philosophy of law, and political philosophy. He is considered to be one of the country's leading conservative intellectuals. Aside from his professors, professorship at Princeton, he also serves as Director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions, is a Herbert W. Vaughan Senior Fellow of the Witherspoon Institute, and a visiting professor at Harvard Law School. He has served as the Chairman of the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, and also as a member of the US Commission on Civil Rights. Uh, he also has a list of medals attached to his name that would make George uh, General Patton blush. Um, but I won't get into all of those. Um, importantly also for this conversation, uh, he's Roman Catholic and also dear friends with, with Hamsa. Um, and some of you may have seen, they have had a number of conversations that you can find on YouTube in the past, which are incredibly interesting um, and worth checking out afterwards if, you're, uh, if you wanna learn more about the things that they have been talking about. Um, so given the, the title of the, the forum tonight is Overcoming Echo, Echo Chambers, uh, perhaps the, the best way to kind of kick off, uh, for, as a question for both of you, is, you know, why is it so important for our society to overcome e- echo chambers and have meaningful conversations about important topics, such as the Islamic Christian Dialogue?
3: Go ahead.
0: Well, I'll be happy to begin. Uh, and first, I want to uh, thank you, Trey, and thank uh, Toby and Jennifer and the Veritas Forum and the Templeton Foundation and everyone who made uh, this evening possible and thanks to all of you for coming out uh, to share this evening uh, with us I want to say what a special joy it is. It always is uh, to be together with my beloved friend uh, Hamza Yusuf. Uh, Hamza and I have uh, not only engaged each other in wonderful conversations We've worked together on some very uh, important topics. We've made common cause uh, with each other in the fight against pornography for example or the defense of human life and It's just been an honor for me to be working arm-in-arm with my uh, dear uh, brother Hamza. Uh, If people think that it's not possible for Christians and Muslims, or Christians and Jews, or Muslims and Jews, or Christians and Muslims and Jews, and people of other faiths faiths to actually work together uh, and to love each other, uh, well, all I have to say to you is uh, you're wrong. Uh, In my experience, it's the easiest thing in the world to do. If you just have goodwill toward each other and you're willing to learn from each other and be supportive of each other, then you can work together more than easily. We have so much in common, so much more in common than what uh, divides us and there's joy in the work that we're able to do uh, together. Now to answer your question specifically, there are a number of reasons today. Uh, why it's important for people to work together, especially believers to work together across the historic lines of religious division. But let me begin with one that is not just for today, one that is timeless, one that is fundamental. And that is, if we work together, we will get nearer and nearer and nearer the truth. If we engage each other, we will learn from each other. And that, I think, is something that is intrinsically worthwhile, inherent to our fulfillment as human beings, fulfilling of our nature as human persons at all times uh, and in all places. So even if we didn't have other good reasons, which we do have today, for working together and reaching out the hand of friendship to each other, there's that eternal reason, perennial reason, uh, to do it. I have learned so much from Hamza, and from other friends, Jewish friends, for example, my Protestant friends. I've learned so much in these dialogues that I'm just grateful for the opportunity to engage uh, with them, and there's no one from whom I've uh, learned more than from uh, Hamza. And then, of course, there are reasons that are quite urgent today. Uh, It's no newsflash that religious divisions are causing bloodshed around the world. They're causing us to live in fear, in fear of each other. They are tempting people, even good people, to stoke fear of people of other faiths. And as I have said time and time and time again to anybody who will listen, this is wrong. It's stupid, but it's also wrong. It's, I, as a Christian, say to my fellow Christians, I as a conservative plead with my fellow conservatives, saying it is wrong to fear our Muslim fellow citizens and it is wrong to make them fear us. We have so much in common, so much to learn from each other, so much to accomplish, common values of justice and decency and goodness, so much to achieve by working together, that being afraid of each other making the other people of the other faith fear us, is a dreadful, horrible, ungodly thing. God does not want this. I can think of no honorable faith that would worship a God that would want that kind of division leading to hatred and to bloodshed. So we have a special reason today to come together as Hamza and I have have done to extend the hand of friendship to each other, and to encourage everybody in our own communities to do the same across these lines of historic religious difference. If we're going to live in peace with each other, then we need to understand each other, and we can only understand each other if we're willing to meet and respect and talk with each other and work together for common values.
3: Hamza? All right. Well, um, thank you. Bismillah. First of all, I want to second your gratitude. to the veritas and for the people coming out. I think in terms of an echo chamber, if I understand it correctly, uh, we, we tend to listen uh, to only those things that agree with us, and increasingly our society, it seems, is it's becoming more and more difficult to have dialogue. Um, our, our culture was um, founded upon this idea of freedom of speech, and yet it's, in, I think, harder and harder for people to speak freely because there's a lot of animosity towards views that are different from mine or yours. And so I think it's absolutely necessary for us to share dialogue so that we can know one another. The Quran has a verse in the 49th chapter that uh, says that we, we created you, the royal we, we created you from a male and a female and made you tribes and communities, and the commentators say tribes share a father, and communities share a tongue, or a culture that binds them. So people are either bound these familial, patrilineal or matrilineal bonds, or they're bound by a culture and a language. And then it says the reason, in order for you to know one another, to come to know one another, and the understanding is not to hate one another. And then it says, surely the noblest of you in God's sight are the most conscientious, the most virtuous, the most pious. And so we know for instance in the United States that people that know Muslims tend to have a more favorable opinion of them than people that don't. We've got a lot of statistics. Um, we have a, there's a character in the Islamic tradition called uh, Joha or Mullah Nasruddin. Um, he's, he's a comical character but he's also, he's a, he's a sagely character and there's a story that he was on the side of a riverbank. it was a wide river, and a, a man came to the other side of the bank and shouted over to him, how do I get across to the other side? And Mullah din said, you're already across the other side. <laughs> and I think there's a lot of truth in that, that we tend to just see things from our own perspective, yeah. and we fail to see things from the other side. Uh, listen to their pain very often, because a lot of it is just acknowledging the pain of the other, which we tend not to do very often. And I'll just give you one really brief story about that for me personally. Uh, My great-grandfather was involved in the mining of the wasabi range in Minnesota, which is from a Lakota word, Minnesota. And uh, I was with this man, Chief Arval Looking Horse, um, who's the pipe carrier for the uh, Lakota people. And we were in an interfaith thing, but I stayed with him in the, in the, in the house. Uh, we were in the same place. And at breakfast, I told him, you know, what my grandfather was involved in. I said, you know, could you find it in your heart, like, just to forgive my family uh, for being part of what you consider desecration? And he, he's a very honorable and noble person, but he just didn't say anything, and I thought that was really stupid. And um, later on, the next day, we were, we were at an interfaith, and he was sitting next to me, and he said, um, we were asked to say something good about somebody else's religion, which is one of these interfaith things that they sometimes do. And when it came his turn, he said, I don't really have anything good to say about the only other religion I know. Um, but I will say that I forgive my brother's family, and he gave me a big hug. And it was very interesting what happened in the room, because I think people felt, because a lot of people came up to me afterwards and said that was so powerful, like what happened? And I think for me, uh, a lot of restoration will come by just acknowledging the pain of the other and what's been done to them. Even if it's a perceived grievance very often, it's a type of humility, um, in our tradition um, the prophet uh, he, he taught people to always look to themselves and, and not try to blame, in the Quran the character that blames is, is the devil, whereas Adam and, and, and Eve took responsibility in the, in the Quranic narrative whereas the devil blamed God and, and they didn't blame the devil in the Quranic narrative, so very often we tend to blame others and forget uh, the importance of taking personal responsibility.
0: Hamza, I agree with you that uh, it is important to uh, acknowledge grievance, uh, even if we don't necessarily agree that the grounds of the grievance uh, is just. But I also think there's a positive side. uh, It's important to acknowledge the good in other people's faiths and the good that people do motivated by their faith. It was a very important moment in my tradition. In 1965, when the Catholic bishops of the entire world gathered uh, for what was called the Second Vatican Council, a great council of the church. It rarely happens in the history of the church, but uh, in 1965 there was a council uh, in Rome and the council produced a small number of very important uh, documents. And one of them was called Nostra etate. And uh, that document has become widely and rightly known as a document that's important for Jewish-Christian relations. It repudiates anti-Semitism, the church's historic involvement, alas, uh, in anti-Semitic acts, the unjust charge of deicide against the Jewish uh, people, and so forth. But uh, although that's primarily why the document is known uh, to the interested general uh, public, there's something more in it And it extends to other faiths, including, very notably, Islam. And that is a whole section devoted to acknowledging, and I quote, all that is true and holy in the other faiths. It's teaching Catholics to not simply tolerate other people and their beliefs as misguided and wrong as they are, but to understand that much in their traditions, especially the monotheistic traditions the church fathers teach, especially the monotheistic traditions, to acknowledge that there's much that is good and holy. Now that's a very important thing because when you recognize that there is much, not just a little bit, much that is true and holy in another faith, you're not just tolerating people anymore, so long as they stay out of your your way. Now you have a ground for engagement.
2: Let's dive into that a little bit. Uh, n- part of knowing someone is understanding what the core message is, what the fundamentals are that that they believe. Um, so let's go back and forth with uh, for both of you to answer this. What is the core message of your of your faith and what is the message of hope for the world that comes out of that today?
3: Well, uh, the the Quran, the Quran basically states that all peoples have been given messages and so there's this idea that actually that there has been divine communication since the beginning and that every peoples have had uh, a messenger. Um, Some the Quran says we've told you about it and others we haven't. Um, We tend to look at revelation as being within the the Abrahamic, the Semitic uh, people, Uh, whereas in the Islamic tradition it, it actually says there's no people that has not had uh, prophets come to them and teach them some basic truths, and those basic truths are that there's only one God, um, and that God has absolutely no um, uh, likeness to any created thing, and that that God um, created us purposefully and intentionally to know, to enter into a, a, a communion, a personal relationship with that God, and that that God has given us basic guidelines. Um, that in the Islamic tradition are, the Ten Commandments are in the Qur'an, that those, those are the most foundational that are in the Ten Commandments. And those bo- ba- basic moral guidelines are meant to be acted upon and that uh, we will be resurrected. Uh, we believe in a bodily resurrection, that we will be resurrected, uh, recreated uh, in, in what's called the jasad al-baqi, the eternal or av eternal body, and we will be judged and that uh, people will be taken to account for their time that they tarried on the earth. And the essential message is to align yourself vertically with God through uh, belief in that God and to av- align yourself horizontally with that God through uh, virtuous behavior, through, through, uh, through knowledge and through will. And so to sum it up, Fakhruddin al-Razi, one of our great... Uh, theologians uh, said, I could sum up the entire message of Islam in two statements, adoration of the Creator and service of His creation.
0: Robert? Christian faith is faith in a person. It's faith in Jesus Christ, understood to be the Son of the Living God, uh, the second person of the Blessed Trinity. Uh, Christianity believes that there is one and only one God who is eternal and transcendent, uh, but that God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, That man uh, fell and sunk in sin, man was helpless to save or redeem himself. And yet God, in his infinite love and goodness, knowing that man was incapable of saving himself, took on the responsibility. Uh, became man. God became man. That's the doctrine of the incarnation. Jesus, the eternal second person of the blessed trinity, uh, is a man. He's truly God and truly man. Who suffers to pay the price of sinfulness, making sure then that it is possible for us to be redeemed, us to be saved. So Jesus, the message of Christianity is that Jesus is our savior. Jesus is our Redeemer. Our faith is in Him as a person and that we are called to enter into a truly personal relationship with Him. Uh, One that will uh, begin what uh, culminates eternally in a participation in God's own life, in the divine life of the Trinity. Uh, Saint Athanasius once uh, summed it up in a way that would be very provocative uh, to many ears by saying that uh, uh, God became man so that man can become like God or more like God. That man can be brought into uh, the eternal life, the divine life of God uh, Himself. That is what redemption and salvation consists in. So, uh, like our Muslim brothers uh, and our Jewish uh, brothers uh, in the developed Jewish tradition, uh, we believe in a bodily resurrection. And we believe in that uh, because we believe the body is no mere extrinsic instrument of right. the self, that the, that the person is not a ghost residing in a machine, is not a psyche or a spirit that just has a material shell or a, uh, that uh, 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 inhabits an, uh, a material vehicle but the body is part of the personal reality of the human being so that uh, to exist fully and rightly as a person as God has created us is to exist in a bodily uh, condition and not simply as a separated soul so that in eternity we exist as we exist today bodily but our bodies will be glorified bodies their bodies raised uh, from the dead uh, to eternal life in the same way that Jesus was resurrected, having uh, died on the cross uh, for our sins, uh, to redeem uh, us. He was raised on the third day by his Father uh, to bodily life. He wasn't just a ghost. When Thomas, so we now know him as Doubting Thomas, uh, happened not to be present when Christ appeared the first time to his disciples uh, after his resurrection. When, uh, when Thomas, Thomas, hearing the story, said, I refuse to believe unless I can explore the wounds in his hands with my fingers or the wound in his side where a Roman centurion had thrust uh, a spear, Jesus then came back, appeared to him, and said, Thomas, I want you to believe. Please explore the wounds in my hands. Explore the wound in my side. Making it clear that he, Jesus, now in his glorified state, was not just a spirit, but a body. Jesus, the God-man, son of man, son of, uh, son of God. And we are called to live a Christ-like life. That's the life of, of virtue. Uh, that's uh, a life that is consistent with friendship with God. But we believe in free will. We believe that God's offer of friendship can be accepted by us Or, alas, freely rejected. Sin is what separates us from God. By our own desire, not by God's desire. We're taught as Christians that God wills all to be saved. We believe in the universal salvific will of God. But we don't believe in universalism. Because we do believe human beings have free will. They can reject God's offer of uh, friendship. Thus dooming themselves to hell. That heaven is not a lock; that we, through our own actions, can reject God's hand of friendship, and instead of taking being taken up into the eternal divine life of the Trinity, we can be excluded from that.
3: So, can, I, can I just um, just mm, just because I wanted to um, add just that, because we believe in the prophets the Muslims acknowledge the Abrahamic prophets. And That's Al-Kitab. Yeah, Al-Kitab. Can you and, explain that concept? Well just Al-Kitab, Al-Kitab literally means the Bible, right, the, the, the Biblios, the book. And so the people of the book are generally the, the Jews and the Christians, but it can also specifically in the Quran refu- uh, refer to the Jews. For instance, in, uh, in An-Nisa, it says that that the Jews will believe in Jesus, before the end of time so it asserts the the jewish acceptance of jesus but jesus is one of the exalted prophets he's one of the five exalted prophets in the quran and and so muslims have to believe in jesus they, they also believe in the annunciation they they believe in something akin to the immaculate conception because there is a sound hadith in al-bukhari and muslim that the prophet said that um, the devil uh, prods every human being uh, before they come, when they come into the world, except for two, uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus are the only two that were not prodded yeah. uh, by the by the devil. And and the Muslims also believe that Mary, who has an entire chapter uh, named after her in the Quran, is one of the most exalted. She's the only woman mentioned by name in the Quran, and uh, and there's a very interesting reason for that. But She's mentioned 34 times in the Quran, but 11 of those times she's only mentioned uh, for her intrinsic uh, virtue, not as the mother of Jesus. So a third of that is, is literally because she's Mary. And another very interesting thing, and you're a genealogist in Arabic genealogy, so you'll appreciate this. Uh, in, in the Quran, in Arabic, when you say the son of so-and-so, you drop, if you, if, you, if, if you have the first name and then the son and then the father's name, you drop the, the alif. Uh, with, with, Mar- the, with Jesus, the son of Mary, the alif is not dropped in the Quran. And, and what it's saying is that Jesus is the son of Mary. So it's, it's exalting her stature. It's not just saying that he's the son of Mary, but he's Mary's son. So it's mm-hmm. focusing on Mary's oh, Mary. uh, extraordinary role as as one of the um, the kumal they are called the perfected women uh, in human history. She's one of them. So there's a very very strong uh, relationship that the uh, the Quran uh, has with the Christian tradition. There's an entire chapter named after the Eucharist, al-ma'idah, and um, uh, many other aspects. Um, but the Muslims do not believe in the sacrificial lamb. The idea, the Muslims believe that human beings have direct access to God uh, for forgiveness, and it does not go through uh, a, 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 some type of vicarious atonement. Uh,
0: many times, uh, those of us who are Christians fail to understand our own faith uh, well because we forget its rootedness in the Jewish uh, scripture and in the Jewish witness. Uh, we forget about the importance of the Jewish uh, prophets, uh, including uh, on the Christian interpretation, the foretelling of the coming of right. the Messiah. Uh, sometimes we even forget that, that Jesus is not just the second person of the Blessed Trinity, the son of the Virgin Mary. The, he's also the Messiah, the Messiah. long promised. Uh, to the Jewish people, and there's a particular Christian interpretation which of course is different from the modern Jewish interpretation of of uh, of what that means to be the Messiah and different from the Muslim interpretation of uh, jesus Messiahship. But Christians do when they understand their faith properly, understand that this is Jesus the Messiah. Christianity fought an important battle very early on in the life of the uh, uh, church over whether the church would remain faithful would understand itself as rooted in that Jewish witness. There was an important figure who uh, was declared a heretic, named Marcion, who wished to cut off Christianity from its Jewish roots. Uh, He wanted to treat uh, the God of the Old Testament as a different God from the God of Jesus and the New Testament, to repudiate the God of the Old Testament. In fact, to reject the uh, Hebrew Bible, Uh, but he lost. What was established as orthodoxy within Christianity is that the whole of the Hebrew Bible, the whole of the Jewish scripture is biblical, is canonical, is authoritative right. for Christians. And then Christians add the, the, uh, the New Testament. So there's, there's nothing, di- in the Christian case, there's nothing different in what Christians called the Old Testament or what Jews would simply call the Bible or the scripture. There's nothing different from what is in the Jewish Bible. Not only are some stories taken from the Hebrew Scripture, the entire Scripture intact is taken as part of the Bible and then the New Testament is added to have the complete uh, Christian Bible. Although Protestants and Catholics have some division about um, uh, some books that... Um, the Apocrypha. Uh, well, the, uh, Protestants call the, it the yeah. Apocrypha and Catholics <laughs> call it the Deuterocanonical uh, works. <laughs> I sort of favored yeah. kind of <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, let, Let's shift gears slightly.
2: Each of you devotes a significant amount of time to promoting religious freedom. Um, you know, why do you think a thriving society requires religious freedom and
0: pluralism?
3: Well, we have one of the foremost constitutional... Oh, okay. In America, so <laughs> well let me I'll not let address you it. That, uh, yeah. You're
0: you're too kind to say that, but let me not address it as a as a constitutional question. Although, if you want me to get into that boring stuff, I will. <laughs> um, I'm easily provoked, uh, uh, but I want to as a as a moral matter. Uh, why I think even someone who is not a person of faith, just relying on reason itself should affirm a robust, not not just a narrow, crabbed, stingy conception of religious freedom, but a robust conception of religious freedom. And here it is. Uh, Fundamental rights protect human goods. We have certain rights because there are certain aspects of human well-being and fulfillment that are important, intrinsically worthwhile, and worth protecting. And there is a particular human good that is protected by the right to religious freedom. And that human good which controversially we could label religion, but it doesn't matter what the label is. Let, just let me describe it and, I'll, and, and, and hope that you'll agree that it is something worth protecting. Uh, this human good has really three dimensions, and they're essential to our humanity. The first is the importance for all of us, for every human person, to ask the basic fundamental existential questions, the questions of transcendence and meaning. Where did the, we come from? Are we merely material creatures or do we transcend our materiality? Is, uh, is, the enti- is all there is a world of material and efficient causes or is there something more than that? Are we truly rational? Are we truly free? Are we not merely material but spiritual as well? Uh, what gives life meaning? Uh, Is there a law higher than the merely human law that states impose, uh, under which the law of states can be held in judgment, as Martin Luther King said in speaking of the natural law and the law of God, as as the law to which uh, uh, the, the merely human laws can be, subjected to scrutiny in light of which we can subject human laws to scrutiny and, and and judge them to be just or unjust so that's the first part of this good the raising of the fundamental existential questions of transcendence and meaning and then secondly for every human being it's important that we not only raise those questions but that we do our best really honestly to answer the questions to not just go along with whatever is trendy or what might get us ahead or make a good impression on other people, but to really try honestly to answer those questions truthfully. Nobody, even an atheist, even Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens would want to go through life not asking those questions or answering them in a hypocritical way. No one would want his children, Richard Dawkins wouldn't want his children to go through life never asking existential questions of meaning and value and transcendence. No matter how they would come out in the end, whether they would share his atheistic convictions or not, he would want his children to ask those questions and to answer them honestly. And then the third part of this human good is to actually live your life with authenticity and integrity in light of your own best answers. Don't pretend to be what you're not. Don't pretend to be a believer if, like Camus, your honest investigations have brought you to non-believing conclusions. Or don't pretend to be a non-believer when in fact your honest conclusions have brought you to belief because, I don't know, maybe because you teach in a university, you're afraid other people might think you're a dumb religious person. (laughs) Don't hide. Live your life with authenticity and integrity. And religious freedom protects the right of all of us to fulfill that aspect of our nature that consists in the asking of those questions, the honest effort to answer them, and to live with authenticity and integrity in light of one's best judgment. That's why we need to protect religious freedom. Over to you,
3: Holmes. Well, I, I mean, I think that for me the, the number one reason w- is it's, it's the best way to prevent hypocrisy becoming very common amongst religious people because I think when people are forced to do something, they do it um, because of the social pressure on them and th- it's very interesting to me that Islam was born in the crucible of religious persecution uh, the Prophet was persecuted for 13 years and really f- almost for the entire 23 years because they were still trying to eliminate his community well into uh, the, the uh, tradition and, and, and the Prophet one of the things, one of the hallmarks of his religion was religious tolerance. Um, instead of being xenophobic they were actually xenophilic And if you look at at a book that Michael uh, Phillips Penn recently published called When Christians First Met Muslims, one of the the interesting things is that we tend to hear from the Byzantine tradition, like St. John of Damascus, and a lot of polemics against the Muslims. But when you actually look at the Syriac sources from the, the heterodoxic churches especially like the Coptic church which was considered by the ca- the Catholic church and the Orthodox church be to be to yeah. be monophysite. Yeah. I mean they like deophysite. They like to use another term for it, but they were seen as a heretical.
0: The uh, idea that Christ had just one nature, one nature. not a divine and yeah, human right. nature. Orthodox Christianity teaches that Jesus is it's both human nature, and divine, right. the son of the virgin Mary, the son of God.
3: So when the Muslims came into Egypt, the Coptic church actually welcomed them and there's ample uh, evidence for this historically. The Muslims, as they uh, got more and more power, became more and more uh, intolerant. But overall, these communities flourished in in, in the uh, in the in, in the uh, in the Middle East. And you have the Chaldean Church. You have, and your own family comes out of one of the Eastern Catholic churches. But people forget that, like, there's several million Coptic Christians in Egypt. Um, that that the Muslims did not uh, annihilate these people or force them to convert. Um, The Qur'an very clearly in chapter, the second chapter, in 256, says there's no compulsion in the religion. And even though some people argue that that was abrogated, and there are Muslims that argue that that was abrogated, that's not the dominant position of of the Muslim tradition. And and the Muslims actually practice that. There's evidence in, in Fred Donner's book, Muhammad and the Believers, who's a a, a very well-respected historian of early Islam. Uh, Fred Donner shows how the Muslims and Christians were actually sharing uh, churches because there was not mosque space, and so they were allowing the Muslims to pray in the churches in that early period. So I think there was a lot of religious liberty, and that's why it's very tragic for me, the current climate now, where you're seeing these ancient churches that were there long before the Muslims, 600 years before the Muslims are literally uh, being persecuted in places. This is one of the great blemishes on uh, the Muslim ummah that will uh, I think go down in history as a great black spot uh, in, in Muslim history. But um, I, I personally I agree with Thomas Jefferson that uh, whether my neighbor believes in one god or twenty gods, neither robs my pocket nor breaks my bones. But I think it's very important for us to acknowledge that people do have their own conscience. And that conscience sometimes will lead them to disbelieve. Um, and, and I actually tell the students at Zaytuna that in the end, you, you ha, you, th- this is not uh, a dogmatic tradition. There's a dogma in the tradition that you can learn, but in the end, you have to believe it yourself. You, 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 can't, you don't inherit faith. You can inherit it from your parents. Real faith is not inherited. It's something that you have to believe yourself. You have to make your own personal commitment. And that can only come out of free will because we also share the belief that the human being is a moral agent, has moral agency. And if they're compelled or forced to believe something, then they're foregoing their moral agency. And it's, 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 it just contradicts the whole idea of moral agency and the open invitation of God, because that invitation, in order for to, be, to, to be truly open, has to be open for rejection.
2: Yeah. So one of, one of the kind of historical reasons for uh, atheists and agnostics to kind of reject all forms of faith uh, is deeply rooted in the history of religion. Right? These things are kind of intrinsically connected in many ways. What do you think are the challenges that exist within both the Islamic and Christian, Christian community today um, that are creating those potential stumbling blocks?
0: Well, all faiths, or all, the, all the large world historical traditions of faith have their black spots. Uh, but, uh, certainly Christianity does and I'll speak here just for Christians, Uh, Hamza has spoken uh, in the Muslim case, Um, those black spots represent cases where Christians have behaved in unchristian ways. It's when they've betrayed their faith, even when supposing they were acting in the name of their faith, sometimes acting in bad faith in the name of their their, uh, faith. We're at our best, we're at our most tolerant, we're at our most respectful uh, to people of other faiths, when we act in a way that's consistent with, say, the teachings of Jesus. Consistent with the understanding that faith in principle cannot be compelled. This goes to a point Hamza just made. Coercive force, whether the coercive force of a state or the coercive force of a parent, can cause someone to perform the outward indicia of faith, but Coercion can't reach the internal acts of intellect and will that are the substance of faith. All it can do, the coercion, the compulsion, is breed hypocrisy, inauthenticity. So it's not just that trying to compel faith is bad. It's quite literally impossible. You will compel external behavior, but not Internal belief. Faith, internal belief, because in, the internal acts of intellect and will that are the stuff of, uh, of, of faith. Now, part of the reason I think that uh, many people uh, today reject uh, religion is the black spots. But I have to ask them, why do you regard those black spots as black spots? Why do we think it's good not to oppress people, not to exercise coercion in the case of belief? not to conquer people, not to dominate people. We can't say, well, it's just obvious that those things are bad. Alexander the Great didn't think they were bad. The people who labeled him the Great didn't think they were bad. Julius Caesar didn't think they were bad. There are great traditions of thought and action that think that glory, that a well-lived human life, read some Nietzsche, is a life dedicated to exercising power over others, to conquest and domination. Who taught us to be against those things? Who taught us that there's a better way, that those things are bad? Our great traditions of faith. So often our friends who reject religion, who embrace unbelief because of the black marks, don't realize that they themselves consider these to be black marks as part of the legacy of the best in these traditions of faith, that through our culture they have appropriated. So I would invite everyone to try to think of what the faith teaches in its purity and integrity and to test whether we think we ought to embrace a faith based on those teachings, not on the black marks that will always be there as long as human beings exist because human beings are weak and vulnerable and fallible. Christians believe fallen. Human beings are going to make mistakes, including moral mistakes and sometimes monstrous moral mistakes. That's going to be the reality. And they'll make the mistakes in the name of religion, or they'll make the mistakes in the name of non-religious ideologies. If we look at the record of unbelief, of secularism, of atheism, do you think that stacks up especially well against religion? I could name you some names, but I don't have to because you all know those names. Mm -hmm. So the,
2: the common counter that you would likely hear to that is that, yes, maybe we have learned something about universal moral codes through great religion, uh, but do we need the superstition? Do we need the religion? Well, that, can <laughs> we not yeah. just yeah. hold the universal moral I, I, code? There's
3: an idea that religion is the scaffolding that we've built our civilizations with, and now that they're built, we can just remove them, but the, I think a stronger argument is that it's the foundation, and, and one of the interesting things to me about secularism is that secularism came out of religious tradition? It didn't come out, it, it didn't birth itself. That the, the, the original secularists, all of them had religious training, they were informed by religious belief. And so when you remove these things, you fall into real utilitarianism, and, and your ethical foundations become very difficult to, to ground. Uh, in in a tradition. This is this is an argument, but the, but the other argument, just about the black spots. I mean, there's probably in some ways, uh, human history is one big black spot. Um, but uh, I think w- w- one of my favorite um, uh, people, Helen Keller, said that that the world is filled with suffering, but we have to remember it's also filled with the overcoming of suffering. That there's another side to history that's very. It's not in the books. It's not all the mothers that suckled their children. It's not all the selflessness and the sacrifice that people have done for others. Um, th- those things are not written in the history books. Um, the, the Muslim sages have always looked at our our planet as an insane asylum, and religion is the thorazine that uh, really keeps the demons yeah. at bay. And w- when you when you look at healthy religious societies, and unfortunately, there's it's it's getting more and more difficult to see that uh, and, and there are reasons for that because in many ways um, things are breaking down and not because of religion but but in fact in the absence of religion there's a great deal that's breaking down because religion is about community it's about um, fraternity not just the fraternity of the ecclesia or the jamaa or, or that that yeah. community but benny adam that we are the children of we're one family and all families have the uncle that they don't want over for Thanksgiving, but he comes anyway, (laughs) right? I mean, this is just part of the human family, that there's people in the human family that are difficult. Um, But I think that the the loss of religion, I think when it's finally gone, because our tradition actually says that atheism does win in the end in this world, when it's finally gone, I think it's going to be a very horrible world.
0: Well, this much I'll give you. When religion recedes, uh, it's not as if there's nothing. Uh, A vacuum is created and something will fill that vacuum. Something will play the role of religion. It will function as a pseudo-religion. Some secular or secularist ideology will come to replace it. It might be utilitarianism, it might be Marxism. uh, Or as I like to call it in San Francisco, soul cycle ecumenicalism. There you are. environmentalism, it, it, will be, it will be something, it will be whatever the latest trendy ideology is and believe me, people will believe it with ferocity and passion and just as has happened with great traditions of faith there will be people who will be willing to do very bad things to other people in the name of this religion, or pseudo-religion, thinking that they are doing good, thinking that they are doing in a sense the Lord's own work. So I think we really don't have an option of no religion, which is why we should take the question of what religion we ought to subscribe to very seriously. Uh, And we should honor, if I can quote from my own Catholic tradition again, all that is true and holy, all that is good and holy in the great uh, traditions of faith. Now that doesn't mean embracing religious relativism that doesn't mean you think that all traditions of faith are correct. Right. I mean, Perennialism. If, 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 or if, if, if Christians believe Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the triune God. Muslims cannot in conscience believe that. Right. Jews cannot in conscience believe that. Right. Now, Well, Paul,
3: but, uh, Paul actually said it was a stumbling block. A stumbling block. The Jews. That's right. And yep. foolishness. Foolishness to, to the, the Gentiles.
0: Right. That's right. So, uh, the one, the, 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 it can't be true that Jesus is the second person of the Blessed Trinity, the eternal Son of God, and that he's not. One of those is right there's and the other claim there. is wrong. Right? They're, they're, yeah. and, 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 but that doesn't mean that someone who thinks the Christians are wrong about this or the Muslims or the Jews are wrong about this must believe that there's nothing right about the other tradition. Or, or that
3: better. we worship a different God. Or
0: that we worship Be, a different because God. Because
3: exactly. I think this is one of the important... If you look at um, uh, Shalosa Asr Shalosa, uh, Asar Al-Khalim, which is the 13... Uh, the creed of Maumonides. A Muslim reading that creed can believe in, I think, every single point, except for uh, perhaps the one that says that Moses is the greatest of the prophets and and the Torah will never be replaced. But all the other points about God, no Muslim would have any problem with that creed. The Athanasian creed is is a lot more difficult because I think there's 31 points in that creed and uh, Muslims would have a difficult time, but so would the Jews for most of those points. But the, in, in Nostra Atate it's very clear that we worship the same God, and that's the Catholic belief. The conceptions of that God are different, but we're talking about the creator of the heavens, and the earth, the resurrector of the, of, of, of the dead, uh, the one that brings us uh, before the throne on the day of judgment, not in any temporal or spatial sense, but in, yeah. in and, and, and who will uh, judge, uh, humanity That's the same God we're talking about. It's certainly the Abrahamic uh, uh, traditions. And so this idea somehow that Muslims worship Allah, and, and, or it's, say Allah is another way that that's said very often, as if it's a different God, even though Ilah is the only Aramaic word that Christ, ilo ilo lima lima sabachtani, you know, which most Arabs could understand that because it's so close to Arabic, but Ilah ilohim, is, is the yeah. Hebrew, and the Christian Arabs say, Allah for God. They call Jesus Ibn Allah, the son of Allah. And so this idea somehow that Allah is this alien God, um, it, it's, it's, it's the Semitic word, it's one of the Semitic words for God. And so I think that's important yeah. just to acknowledge that.
0: I often make this point to my uh, fellow Christians who, who wonder or sometimes even claim that uh, Allah uh, is not is not God that the m- Muslims worship uh, uh, a false god or worship a demon? Uh, as, as As Hamza hinted uh, earlier, uh, I'm ethnically Syrian. My father's people are from Syria, uh, Christian uh, Syrians, Eastern Orthodox uh, uh, Syrians. So I grew up with my grandparents blessing us in the name of Allah. Uh, <laughs> I, that was just—I mean, I knew that was God. I—that I, I mean, that wasn't an issue to me. So I—I I, was—I was a bit taken aback the first time uh, I heard uh, a Christian uh, say, when I was an adult, uh, "Well, Muslims don't worship God; they worship Allah." And I said, "Well, huh?" <laughs> right.
2: So, so, the Christian critique of Islamic fundamentalism or extremism has right. tended over the last 20 years to have been something along the lines of, well, Islam needs to go through the Reformation, right? right? Because we had this kind of bloody history, right. and the Enlightenment came around, and we had a Reformation, yeah. uh, not to mention how bloody the our reformation own Reformation was. was right. But yeah, I, I'm, uh,
0: gonna, I'm gonna step aside on this <laughs> Reformation <laughs>
2: Um But you, you've said before that you believe that Islam doesn't need to go through a reformation. They are going through yeah, this, a reformation. This is the reformation, and they need a council it's, without of very
3: good theologians. <laughs> so, so yeah, yeah wh- why? The I mean, re- reformation preventing... had some pretty decent. I, I mean, I, I don't. Uh, I, I prefer the Catholic iteration, but but. Um,
0: I always knew Hamza was a Catholic Muslim. He yeah. <laughs> just didn't have the tone of a Protestant Muslim to me. <laughs> yeah. so, so
2: what is preventing Islam from, going, from experiencing a Council of Trent moment?
3: Well, I think part of it is that the, the Muslim world is in, a ve- in great disarray right now. I mean, Darul the, the Islam, I just wrote a little piece about the abode. We call it the abode of Islam. I said the abode of Islam is derelict. The plumbing's not working, the water's not working. The, I believe the foundation's solid, that we can renovate the house, but the house is is derelict. And I think there's there's a lot of problems, there are a lot of reasons for it. Um, overall, uh, just the curvilinear nature of civilizations. Um, uh, Islamic civilization has been on the downside for, for quite some time. It was noted in the 14th century by Ibn Khaldun that things were looking bad, right? And so uh, we also, I think the, the traditional, um, and I'm gonna do a little pitch for liberal arts right now, but the traditional model of Islamic education was similar to the Christian model of Christian education, which is that you needed a, a well-rounded um, a person. Most religious scholarship now is, is entirely focused on religious training only. Whereas in, in, in classical Islam, Uh, The the, the Muslim scholars were great mathematicians. Many of them were at the cutting edge of science. Much of Islamic theology actually deals with um, Euclidean geometry, oddly enough. That a lot of the great theologians uh, took um, uh, a lot of insight from Euclidean geometry, which the book of Euclid was something that was mastered by all traditional Muslim theologians. So I think a lot of it is just a loss of a kind of holistic view. And right now you have, in, in, the, in the Muslim world, you have uh, governments that have been entirely in control of the religious uh, tradition, which for me, it just deracinates religion of its life when governments take over religion. And, um, and that thriving uh, traditional antagonism between the religious uh, leadership and governments, which was there. There was, there was a very interesting tension between the two. They, they were loyal citizens, but, they, th- but there was always a tension between them. That tension has largely been lost, and that has led, because of the stagnation, it has led to reactions from within the Muslim community who now see traditional scholarship as scholars for dollars, that these are, these are people that are just in the employment of tyrannical governments. And, and so, demagogues have arisen out of that vacuum and, and now you have, unfortunately, I mean, the worst thing that you can do is, is, uh, is hand religion over to, uh, to uneducated people. Especially a religion as dangerous as Islam. Because Islam does have, uh, in, in the Qur'an, there are verses that are very difficult to understand um, without serious training. I'll just give you one example. There's a verse in the Qur'an that says, la uh, tujadru. إِلَّا هِيَ أَحْسَنَ Do not uh, enter into dialogue with the, the people of the book except in the best way. Um, and then it says, إِلَّا And the word illa there usually means accept, but in that verse it actually means, and also, even the people who are ظَلَمُوا. So there's an example where an, an Arab, if they hadn't been trained, in classical scholarship, they would never be able to understand that. Um, and when Graham Wood came to me, he actually interviewed me in, in, in my house, and he, and he was talking about ISIS and how they have, you know, their own version of the. And I said, "Where did they get their training?" Where? And I, I pulled out a book, which is called mughli Labib. It's a book that it's the last book that you study in grammar. It's two volumes, just on the prepositions and particles in the Quran, and. It goes into great detail, and I was just telling Robbie George about the Oxford comma, which I'm a fan of. um, (laughs) You know that there there was a case in in, there was a case in Boston where, where literally because there was an Oxford comma omitted in a state contract, they were going to end up having to pay possibly $10 million. People don't realize that grammar matters. You know, let's eat, Grandma. Is she gonna be dinner or is there a comment <laughs> after let's eat? You know, grammar matters. I mean I want I, I actually want Google to, to 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 put something on the internet that automatically erases anything poorly written. Because all of these negative comments would so just freedom disappear. Freedom of speech, freedom no, of, religion, fine. Freedom freedom of, of speech. speech is not for you know private companies. <laughs> they also. But it would just eliminate all that negativity. Because whenever I see really vile comments on the internet, they're always poorly written. <laughs> it's just, it's so interesting to me,
0: you yeah.
2: So, I think this might be a, a good transition point for a couple of things. The, the first is, I'm gonna ask one more question, but fire away with the text messages. Um,
0: I'm getting- In good hom-
2: grammar. In good grammar yeah. only, <laughs> yes. If you have multiple points to your question, make sure that Oxford comma is Can in I there. Can I follow
0: up on something uh, that Hamza said, though, before you ask the yeah, yeah. next question? Uh, famously, Father Richard John Newhouse, the late Father Richard John Newhouse said uh, of the New York Times editorial page, that according to the New York Times and the New York Times' view, the only good Catholic is a bad Catholic. So I, uh, I unfortunately find a lot of conservatives and Christians who believe the only good Muslim is a bad Muslim.
3: Or a dead one.
0: They, well. <laughs> yeah. They think that yeah, of course there can be good Muslims. Those are the ones who don't follow Islam, right. or those are the ones who that's don't what understand Islam. That's what a lot of people uh, under, believe that understand now. Islam. Yeah. So, uh, what is that rooted in? Well, uh, it's rooted in the bad example that's set by Islamist terrorists, of course, but it's also rooted in a profound misunderstanding of the teachings of Islam itself and a distorted picture of the history, which you've done a lot to correct a little tonight and a lot of it in uh, in other places. Uh, I think if conservatives and Christians understood better the teaching of Islam, and if they were willing to look at the interpretative issues in Islam the way we look at the interpretative issues in the Bible, they would realize that the world will be better not if Muslims become bad Muslims, right. but if Muslims become better Muslims. The better they are as Muslims, the better they will be for everybody, as citizens, as friends. You, you
3: know, and I'm, I mean this in all seriousness, I truly believe if you look at what's happened in the Muslim world over the last sev- several decades, and just in, in, since 9-11, um, the physicians for, for, for social responsibility estimate about 1.3 million Muslims have been killed. Uh, the vast majority, civilians, men, women, and children, um, on this war on terror. Um, since 9-11, there's been about 130 Americans been killed by Muslims in the United States. During the same period, 240,000 Americans have been murdered by other Americans. Um, I, th- I think... I truly believe that Islam, given what's happened in the Muslim world and the type of uh, difficulties that Muslims are living under, would drive a lot of people crazy. And had it not been for religion, I think you'd have a lot more mad people in these environments. It's religion's the only thing really that they're holding on to because re- Islam is a religion of hope. So as if you've and, said... And I, a- and I truly believe that there would be far more terrorists if there wasn't Islam to to keep these people in check, I really believe that.
0: Yeah, you. Uh, you've thought- I think
3: they're in spite of uh, most of these people do not have real religious teachings, and the few that do, we have always had in the history of Islam a group that has has been barbaric. We ha- we had a sect called the Hashashin, uh, who were literally terrorists. You know, during the Seljuk period, uh, they would literally go in and kill, like the Sakurai in the Jew in yeah. the Jewish tradition. Um, so. These are these are problems of religion. I call them the externalities, to use an economic term. You know, when you produce something, you have externalities that are either positive or negative. And religion also has externalities. It's, it's like a nuclear power. You can use it to light houses or you can use it to blow people up. But nuclear power also has that waste product. You know, it's just... And so religion has a type of... It's it just... It's embedded in the religion. I think it's part of the... The, the, the divine dysfunctionality of this place, you know, that I really think God, I mean, part of the reason that this place is designed the way it is, is to drive people to God. Because if if it doesn't drive you to God, it'll drive you to drink.
0: <laughs> well, it, well, since you brought that up, um, <laughs> our mutual friend Jennifer Bryson uh, uh, was a civilian, um, employee of the military and she was for 2 years a, a, I think 2 years it might have been a little more
3: at Guantanamo. A, a,
0: a an interrogator right. at Guantanamo and one of the things that amazed her was that almost none of the people she interrogated themselves had any real knowledge of or deep commitment to the religion in the name of whom they had committed acts of terror right. she said some other things were the widespread history of drug use among them the pornography that was rampant among them. He, yeah. She said uh, there was, w- in, in one case, when they took apart a computer, when they looked into what was in uh, the laptop of one of the terrorists, they were shocked because it wasn't stuffed, filled, there was no pornography there. Right. They had become so accustomed to Defining computers. Now, these weren't you know, devout uh, uh, people yeah. who, who were, who were uh, you know, stuffing their computers full of uh, pornography. For whatever reason, they had latched on to yeah. Islam but they were not model um, Muslims. Right. From a Muslim. Well, uh, this point this of view. book,
3: which is the, a thinking person's guide to Islam, which was written by Prince Ghazi bin Muhammad from Jordan, he has the last section of this really good book. But in the last section, he has a lot of the Jordanian intelligence about ISIS in it, and many of them have criminal backgrounds. Yeah. Um, so, unfortunately. Um, th- this is a reality, but the vast majority of Muslims, you're looking at at 23% of the planet, is Muslim. And the idea, of first of all, waging war on one out of every four people on the planet is insane. And, and, and the religion itself, which has been enlisted, as religion is often enlisted, in um, a lot of these wars are about over resources, over land, over disputations, over occupation. Um, and so religion just gets enlisted. The Palestinian Liberation Army was a completely secular organization, and, and the Islamists only arose in, in the late 1970s and 80s. Yeah. Before that, the Palestinian resistance was largely communist.
0: Yeah, so, and there's nothing unusual about this. Even Stalin, the atheist communist Stalin, when he had to fight the Second World War, enlists the Orthodox Church right? into the blessing yeah. of the Russian soldiers and the Russian armaments. This is a constant through history. And on the interpretative questions, uh, I think it's important for Christians uh, and Jews to understand that in our scripture, there are problematical, difficult to interpret passages. What about the, 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 the passage in which God commands genocide, the slaughter of women and children among the Canaanites? How are we to interpret that? Is the God we worship a God who orders Genocide? Well, the, the great teachers of the tr- tradition, such as the medieval Jewish and Christian, uh, the great uh, theologians of the medieval period, Jewish and Christian alike, tended to treat those passages in spiritual terms. The Canaanites represent the evil within us, right, these are, these are the, the sin within us. And the genocide, the, the, the destruction of, the, of, the, of the, even the women and the children represents the complete destruction of sinfulness and of the sin uh, uh, within us. Now look, if we Christians and Jews are permitted to interpret our scripture that way, then we have
3: better, we had better
0: permit Muslims to interpret their scripture.
3: And and there are many, many of the great scholars, that's how they interpret a lot of these verses. They tend not to, in the Islamic tradition, uh, esotericism, uh, which is called uh, botany or occultism, um, is when you deny uh, the, the outward meaning as well. So the inward meaning, the outward meaning, there's a very interesting balance and in play between the two, but there are no verses in the Quran that call for genocide. There are no verses in the Quran that call for, and, and the few verses that, that are there, like the one that's always quoted from Tawbah, uh, the ninth chapter, um, which says uqtulun mushrikeen, you know, kill the, the polytheists wherever you find them, was specific as a permission uh, f- for people who had attacked the Muslims at that specific time. And although, and, and, I, and I'm going to be honest about this, I, there are interpretations in Islam that are very problematic. And we, we do have a history. If they're isolated and they tend to be minority opinions, but they are there. And it's very important for people to understand that there's no vigilantism in the Islamic tradition. All of the verses that deal with these type things are the prerogative of a government. And this is why one of the things that the so-called Caliphate did, which was very clever, was to declare that it was a government. Al-Qaeda never did that.
0: You're, by the Caliphate, you're talking about ISIL. I'm,
3: I am talking about ISIL, yeah. yeah. So, but what they did by doing that, they were in a sense attempting to legitimize their, their, um, their positions about jihad and these things. Because Al-Qaeda, technically by classical Islam and by you know, all the scholars of Islam, Nobody can declare jihad except somebody who is in authority to do that. And and, and so and, and then you get into debates about whether it's offensive and defensive. Many, many scholars have said jihad is only defensive jihad because the Qur'an is very clear that fight those who fight you, right? تعتدو, don't aggress on people. These are the interpretive traditions that we're trying to teach, that we're trying to, these, this is the narrative that we... And it's not to deny that there aren't other narratives out there. Unfortunately, there are, and some of them are quite uh, troubling. But the the answer for me, Islam is not going to go away. Christianity is not going to go away anytime soon, any of these religions. And so we have to learn uh, to find within our own traditions those things that will be most appropriate for the time that we're living in. But from the matrix of the religion, because if, if people want just to reinvent or reconfigure the religion in their own image, the vast majority of, of people aren't gonna accept that, that adhere to these religions. And, and that's why it's very important. But I believe that we have, in, our, in each one of our traditions, we truly have the resources uh, that are, are compatible with the time that we're living in, that concord with, with uh, the basic sensibilities of our time, uh, to a large degree, there's always going to be tension between believers and between the world. I mean, there, There's always going to be that tension. It's the nature of, of, of the truth that we adhere to. The, the world will, will, in many ways, hate us as believers because the way of the world is the way of, of appetite. It's the way of the, the, the lowest aspects of the human beings. And the way of faith is calling people to rise up to a, a much higher standard
0: this is a point of convergence between christianity and islam because that's exactly the teachings of the new testament uh, you find it suffused uh, throughout uh, paul's uh, paul's writings uh, you don't expect the world to be happy about the demanding message that is preached by the faith
2: let's talk about the time that we live in right now and particularly because we're here in the San Francisco Bay Area, where you know technological technological progress is kind of the name of the game, um, we had an interesting conversation beforehand uh, about one of the other commonalities that are are being seen in the millennial cultures of of both Christianity and Islam um, around this like kind of rise of secularism and identity as being a, a bigger part of religion than the actual fundamentals of the faith. Um, how do you think progress and the actual like, progressive movement, the, the um, kind of technological utopianism, transhumanism, how do you think all of this is playing into the rise of secularism and how it will affect people of faith uh, in the years to come?
0: Well, let me give it a start. Uh, uh, first, I'm very concerned about identitarianism. Uh, uh, I see it doing nothing but harm, uh, whether it's on the left or on the right. Uh, and regardless of who started it. Uh, and when I see it creeping into my own faith, cre- creeping into Christianity, where people treat Christianity as fundamentally an identity and uh, and not a faith, uh, and build politics around uh, that identity, uh, I think that's a, uh, uh, that's a nearly blasphemous thing to do. Um, I think our culture is suffering very badly from uh, the divisions that are... Uh, provoked and exacerbated uh, by identitarianism. Uh, I'm not at all surprised by the rise of this phenomenon called the alt-right, although I deplore it, but it is what one would expect when identitarianism is uh, uh, the order of the day uh, in our politics. So, it's a matter of very, very grave uh, concern to me and I think that all of us within our different traditions, especially our religious traditions, but not exclusively our religious traditions, also our ethnic communities and so forth, but especially within the religious traditions I think we have to fight that impulse just as hard as we can. I think we have to fight fight it off. What we need to be loyal and faithful to is the teachings of our faith. Uh, not to some identity that we adopt based on the fact that we happen to be Christians or happen to be Muslims. That kind of tribalism will undo this great noble experiment in ordered liberty that the founders of our nation, for all their faults, bequeathed to us. And I think it's too precious a treasure to permit that uh, to happen. Now, on the, on the technology uh, front, I'm, I'm all for progress, I'm all for technology. Uh, relieving uh, suffering, um, uh, enhancing the quality of human life. All that's good, but it's got to be within moral boundaries. The integral human good has to be taken into account. And in the name of progress, we can degrade our very humanity, and that's something I'm concerned about. Uh, There are almost no new bad ideas. Almost all bad ideas are actually old bad ideas that are being (laughs) revived. Uh, There's a very bad idea that's being revived uh, today and it's an idea that Christianity had to uh, wrestle with uh, early on in the uh, first two or three centuries, and that idea is called Gnosticism, Um, G-N-O-S-T-I-C-I-S-M. Gnosticism, among uh, other things, um, proclaimed, taught. And there were various forms of it, some were highly ascetical, some were quite the opposite, highly licentious. But one of the things that was a constant within Gnosticism was the idea that human beings are not their bodies, but merely inhabit them. That human beings are psyches or minds or spirits or souls that merely inhabit and use as extrinsic instruments material bodies. This is the idea that's captured in the concept of a ghost uh, in a machine.
2: Ghost in the shell. Which is actually a movie that just came out two weeks ago. not surprised, (laughs) I don't know about that, but I'm not surprised. It's just
0: what this age would produce. A lot of of the films are not. Back to our old, yeah. And uh, what that that loses sight of is the profoundly important truth that our bodies are not merely extrinsic instruments of ourselves as persons who inhabit them. Our bodies are part of our personal reality as human beings. They share our dignity. So our bodies matter. This is why, as I said earlier, in Islam, in the developed Jewish tradition, in Christianity, the stress is put on the resurrection of the body. To be who we truly are as human persons means to live as a bodily person, not just as a non-personal body uh, that's inhabited uh, by a non-bodily person. Uh, That's not what Human right. beings are, but I think if we slip into this this mistake, there'll be a continual descent as our uh, uh, our sense of our own the worth of our bodies, the meaning, the importance of our bodies, uh, is is lost. You you see this in the area of sexual ethics very much. This is why I think you have such a challenge today to Christian and Jewish and Islamic uh, sexual ethics. You see it in the aspiration, the utopian aspiration, to upload human consciousness into a computer. So we do away with the body altogether and we can just have our satisfactions. Our bodies don't exist simply to, as mechanisms, as extrinsic machines or instruments for for generating somehow uh, psychic satisfactions in our our minds or in our- uh, So it sounds like you
2: would say that you don't think we live in a simulation.
0: Uh, No, we're not in the matrix. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, Where we live in reality, and part of our reality is our embodiedness, mm-hmm. our bodily selves. And so those are some those are some yeah. concerns that I have.
3: And they, were, the Matrix, they were influenced by Gnostic thought, right? Yeah, so.
0: so what's Star Wars, right? The Force. Right. The Force has a, one of the other features of Gnosticism Darkened, is it's Manichaeism, right, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That yeah. that there, there's not an all good, mm-hmm. beneficent, loving God. There's a demiurgic sort of force that has a dark side and a. Yeah. And, and a light side. I mean, you know, Christ- Christianity, in its struggle with Gnosticism, prevailed, but uh, it was never able to drive a stake through the vampire's heart to keep it in the, mm-hmm. in the in the coffin. It keeps popping up. It did in the Middle Ages. Uh, it did in some ways in uh, the early modern period. Right. Cartesian, the Cartesian yeah, Descartes conception citations. of the person is fundamentally yeah. Gnostic, and now it's back again today.
3: I mean, I, I think in some ways it would, there would be some divine irony if the Terminator scenario actually played out, because the things that we've created to serve us then turn on us. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, it's almost it would be divine justice, um, because God created us and to serve Him, and we've turned on
0: God. Yeah, if the divine power of reason, the gift of God, that's the most godlike thing about us, were used to degrade our very Humanity, yeah. that is a profound, tragic irony. Yeah.
3: So um, I, I think we should all be really concerned because things are happening at a very fast rate. Uh, and one, one of the things about this idea of progress is you can't stop progress. But there's ample evidence historically to say that you, you can at least slow it down. Um, the, the, the Ottomans, for instance, prohibited the use of the, um, the printing press for 400 years. And people think that they did it because they were against books. It's not true. They actually did it because the, the scribe lobby was so powerful. Uh, so
2: it's basically just like today.
3: It's, it's basically just like today. Crony <laughs> capitalism. It, the, the scribe lobby could literally... They had master calligraphers that spent a long time to learn how to do this. They had 400 people in a factory. Each one would do a page, and they'd do a book in very quick time. And so the idea of bringing in these these um, machines to replace all these people, what would the people do? That was basically the idea behind it. And the other thing is they didn't like the idea of pounding uh, for the Quran. They they thought, first of all, to write it backwards was sacrilegious because that's something they do in magic. And then the other was the pounding. So um, that's just an example where they actually thought about it and decided that it's not really a good thing to eliminate all these jobs, like now all the cab drivers with Uber. And now Uber, I think, is getting in trouble, and there's some other group coming up. But now with the automation, we're gonna be driving uh, driverless cars pretty soon. And th- there's pretty good, good argument, because apparently several of them drove across the United States and got into three accidents, all caused by human drivers, right? <laughs> so the actual automated cars didn't get into accidents. And I think these are gonna be the arguments that are used. Uh, and, you, and even uh, surgery and things like this, ro- robots are doing a lot of things. I don't think people are really quite aware of what's actually happening out there. And I was in uh, at the World Economic Forum. They had a meeting here with a lot of CEOs from Silicon Valley. And, and one of the things that was said in there was we need to prepare the Americans for all the jobs that are going to be lost in the, in the coming years. And, and, and they were talking about white-collar jobs. They weren't talking about like yeah. labor, they were talking yeah. about white collar jobs. So these are very serious concerns, I think, for us. But also, technology is changing us. One, one of the things about, um, in, in, in the Catholic tradition, and, and also in the Islamic tradition, there's something called Asidia, which is one of the seven deadly sins. And acedia, which they call the noonday devil. Um, acedia is actually, they, it's translated as sloth, but it's not really a good translation, because people think sloth is laziness. Acedia is a type of spiritual laziness, but the hallmark of it is distractibility. Is, 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 and it's one of the real deadly sins. It's a mortal sin because if you get into a, an ascetic state, um, you're, you'll, you'll never focus. Constantly distracted. And one of the things with young people now with all this technology is they're losing the ability to concentrate. They're losing the ability just to, to, to be present, to, to, to focus. They're constantly being distracted. And so that distractibility of these machines that are calling us, one of the things about compulsion, we talked about no compulsion in religion. Many of us are living lives of compulsion that we're compelled by things internally and externally. And one of the most important aspects of religion is to free people so that they become not slaves to themselves or oh, to their yeah. lower impulses, but literally they're freed by by becoming uh, servants of God in control of themselves, of their lower, their appetites, the concupiscent soul, the irascible soul. The, th- this was at the heart of these religious trainings. And that's why discipline was so important. The idea of just disciplining the soul, um, spiritual practices to do this. And, and so I think the, 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 the idea, what um, Richard Weaver called the stere- stereopticon, you know, this, this idea, a- at his time, he was writing about um, television, radio, and media. Whereas now, if we think about... I mean, he was worried about it back then. Now we have... Now we have all of these Internet things. Internet. Com- and, and, and we've got so many people... Uh, I mean, we had some girl th- the other day was taking a selfie and fell off a bridge. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, w- I just... It's just so strange t- to, to, to see what's happening. When, when, when you look now, everybody wants to take pictures. And, and, and I always, you know, I, I remember years ago I was in Morocco and there was a very old Moroccan man. Somebody wanted to take a picture and he said, he said, you know, he went with his heart, you know, take the picture here, you know, keep the memory yeah. here. And I think one of the things, we now see more images in a day than a Victorian saw in their entire lifetime. And, and one of the things about traditional uh, me- metaphysics is images are very important. And, and images, there's a belief that images are embedded permanently. That's why whenever I see these, you know, they have these ads for films. There's scenes in this film you'll never forget. That's a reason not to see it. (laughs) You know, because people are watching now, like, torture. They're watching... uh, The average American child by the age of 18 sees about 18,000 murders by the age of 18. Simulated murders. And you just imagine Mm. what these things are doing to our psyches.
2: Although there's, there's also, like, the quote from... I believe it was Douglas Adams who wrote Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy where he said, anything that exists before you're 30 is not technology, it's just old. Anything <laughs> that exists when you're 30 is technology and it's crucial to your daily life. And anything that exists after you're 30 is evil and really, really scary. And so <laughs> there's, there's like this question of like, do we look back over time? And we, the things that we're saying today are the th- same things that people were saying 50 years ago or 100 years ago. Anyway, totally different discussion. I want to make sure we get to some of the questions because I'm getting these hilarious messages on my iPad from someone that's saying, like, you need to stop, this is ridiculous. So, um, so let's just g- get to a couple of them. I- incidentally,
3: the conversation was ridiculous. No, 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 <laughs> like we're
2: going over time, so. <laughs> the conversation is great. Uh, we, incidentally, we've covered like eight of the 10 questions already, which is really cool. It's the way up. Um So, uh, so here's, here's a, a unique one. Um, what is the responsibility of us as Christians and Muslims when it comes to participation in social movements of people who might have different perspectives? So, participations of the religious in social movements.
0: Well, in the United States, almost all the great uh, reform movements of our history, uh, abolition of What's slavery, the civil, civil rights movement, the, uh, uh, women to pr- uh, the movement to protect uh, women and uh, prevent child labor, uh, the movements uh, against alcohol, uh, against now the um, uh, trafficking, uh, especially trafficking of, um, of women into um, the sex trade. Uh, all of these have been religiously motivated uh, and inspired. I mean, think of the civil rights movement uh, as a good example. Uh, Martin Luther King was the Reverend Martin Luther King. Uh, his chief lieutenant was the Reverend uh, Ralph Abernathy, uh, the Reverend uh, Hosea Williams and uh, others. Uh, they uh, not only spoke religious language, they were clearly motivated by the fundamental Christian uh, principles uh, uh, that they held as a matter of, of, uh, of faith. So it would be very odd to suppose that uh, you could or should uh, detach uh, religious witness from movements for uh, justice uh, or to uh, overcome uh, social ills. Uh, we now have the opioid crisis, where, where I grew up in Appalachia, I grew up in West Virginia, uh, and in lots of other uh, places in the country, uh, rural as well as, uh, in some cases, urban, Rust Belt cities and so forth, uh, you have a terrible uh, crisis with opioids. Well, that, in a fundamental sense, is a spiritual crisis. It's that just, if it's it going to be addressed, to it will yeah. have to be addressed in, uh, in spiritual uh, yeah. terms, and, and the churches and other religious organizations are going to have to play a very important role in people motivated by faith to make the kinds of sacrifices that pretty much in human history faith alone by and large motivates well that those sacrifices are going to have to be made and people of faith are going to have to be the ones who are uh, making those uh, those sacrifices we we need today people like Martin Luther King people like Dorothy day uh, people of courage Rooted in faith, who are willing to address spiritual problems in spiritual terms. Right. That's how I see it.
3: Well, I, I totally agree. If bury the chains, chains about the ending of uh, uh, certainly the transatlantic slavery, that that was those were evangelicals in uh, in England. People like William Wilberforce, Hannah, Hannah Moore, one of the great yeah. women of England, um, and uh, a freed slave there, Aquino. Um, the Clapham 12, that they were motivated by religion. Even the Catholic Church was supporting labor unions 120 years ago when, when it was not popular yes. to support them because they believed in just wage. You, you have Ambrose. Ambrose, uh, in the Catholic Church, one of the church fathers, has uh, incredible stuff about poverty and how the rich Christians, he said, you're thinking about what stones you're going to use to pave your, your, the front of your house. Right. When and there are people starving. When there are people starving. You know, starving. Need your attention. Right. So yeah. it's not like these things go away. We're dealing with perennial uh, problems. Uh, and, and so I think religion has to be at that. You, and there are different capacities. I don't think everybody, we need contemplatives. Oh, we, yeah, we, absolutely. We need, we need scholars. That's a we very need, good point. Yeah, we need people. And this one of the problems, I think, in the activist community, is if you're not an activist, you're kind of dismissed as being part of the problem. Whereas you might be doing things that are really important in your own area. And so all of us are pressed for time. So I think it's very important that people understand that that we, sh- we should support good causes in prayer, certainly. And if we're able to, then to support them in other ways. Um, but but um, th- there's a lot out there going on. I think one of the big challenges that we have right now is the mental illness. There's a, uh, I think we're in very, Unstable times, and I think the opioid uh, crisis is really part of that. I actually uh, had fentanyl, not illegal fentanyl, but legal <laughs> fentanyl, and I had it in the 1990s, and um, I, I'd broken my arm, very bad break, and they gave me fentanyl, and I, I really under, I had a spiritual experience on fentanyl. Um, <laughs> So I, I really... Can, Not to be tried
0: at home. I, I,
3: I really can understand how people would want to get to that place that fentanyl got me there very quickly um, because the world is very painful. And one of the things I've mentioned this before in conversation with Robbie, but Karl Marx, um, the quote that they use about opium, what he actually said was that religion is the sigh of the oppressed. It's the heart of a heartless world. It's the opiate of the masses. Yeah. And what he was saying is that religion, that, that what we need to do is create this perfect world where people won't need religion to numb their pain. That, that was his argument. But he was acknowledging that religion actually acts as, as an opioid. And because now people no longer have religion to go to, opium becomes the drug of choice because substitutes for God. So people are substituting uh, opium for the ability to turn to God. And, and I think of just... The blues tradition in the United States, blues came out of, of spirituals. You know, the African-American people in this country, they sang blues songs. Martin Luther King used to quote, of, of, you know, I, uh, uh, he quoted a blues song, I've been down so long, down don't mean nothing to me no more. You know, it's, yeah. it's like the blues help people get through, singing help people get through uh, g- great trials and tribulations. And so I think religion has that, that, that incredible capacity, true religion, to do that. And that's why, for me, religion has been an incredible source of solace for me, that I know that that door is always open. Um, And and that's a door that should be knocked on constantly. Um, The the door of prayer. Prayer is efficacious. Prayer works. Um, We're not talking to ourselves, as some would imagine. Um, We're talking to a, a living, eternal, God that listens and, and, and will give people what they need to get through the trials and tribulations that he's, uh, he's allowed to exist in this world.
0: I want to lay some emphasis on a point that Hamza made, and it's about what we as individuals are called to. One of the great things about traditions of faith is that they have uh, given us the truth that we are not all called to the same thing. Some of us are called to married life, others to single life. Some of us are called to religious vocations. Others of us will, even if we're devoutly religious, have our calling in the secular sphere as lawyers or doctors or salespeople or auto repair people or uh, what, what have you. We're not all called to be activists. Some of us are, but we're all called to be active. Even if our activity is the activity of contemplation, the activity of prayer. Religious sisters in a convent are active in leading their contemplative life, praying for the reconciliation. You know, a of the g- world. really
3: good example of this is if you look at Edith Stein, incredibly active life, um, and when she a great under- philosopher, when, when she student of enter- Husserl, when she entered into the the the, the uh, Carmelite nunnery, 1933. After her conversion, right? The I, she converted in the 20s, but she was sent to Belgium in 1938, and really remarkable experience, um, this, this woman. But when she was arrested by the, the Nazis, um, and taken, one, one of the eyewitness accounts was that there were women there who were literally insane. And they had completely neglected their children, and the children were screaming and crying. And he said that Edith Stein came into this environment. You can imagine being in, in, a, in a, uh, a Nazi you know, I believe camp, she was camp. in Auschwitz. She was in it? Auschwitz, yeah. yeah. But she, they, he said that she had a calm that was so palpable, and she began taking care of the children in the midst of this. And that's the power of the contemplative life.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And that if, if you lose those people, what you end up is, we have a lot of angry people out there, and, and anger is not a rung on the spiritual ladder. Indignation is, but anger is actually a very harmful force in the world. And there's a, there's a, a very big difference between indignation and, and anger.
2: So one last question um, from the audience, which I think is a great note to end on. Uh, Yeah, you might want to wrap that back. Um, So I think it's going the wrong way now. (laughs) Uh, In 60 seconds each, we have two minutes total. Um, What is the message uh, from Islam and Christianity for cultural renewal at this point in, in history? I'm sorry. What does cultural renewal look like in the Islamic tradition and in the Christian uh, tradition in, for the modern world?
3: Well, for me, the hallmark of a cultural renewal would be a restoration of beauty as a central uh, cultural goal. Um, all of our religions share this, this triad of virtues of truth, goodness, and beauty. And um, I think one of the hallmarks that I see in the modern world is a lot of ugliness. Um, it's it's become very ugly, and I think for a lot of people, I, you know, this is an Indian carpet, and um, the Indians would never do a carpet like we do carpets today. I mean, these ugly, horrible carpets that you find in in <laughs> hotels and things like that. It's it's a just a beautiful carpet, and beauty's not in the eye of the beholder. I mean, uh, the, the, there there are actually aesthetic. There are ways of determining something's intrinsic beauty. It's not simply just what I see as beautiful. That there really is the human being who's in a healthy condition will actually see beauty wherever it is. And that's why we're struck by mountains. That's why we're struck by waterfalls. That's why we're struck by forests. People. A lot of people are in in just nature deficit disorder. they just not going out and, and just experiencing primeval nature, just being with God's creation. Because if you go to malls, I was just in in, in Singapore and we're walking through and it, it was horrible. I get constricted in these places. And and these poor people walking through these places with these bovine stairs and as if consumers and consumption is the purpose of life. You know, that that there's we have hearts. All of us have these incredible human hearts. And when that heart is open to beauty, to real beauty, then you will see a cultural renewal. But when that heart is, is, has been literally just life has been removed from that heart, we, people don't love anymore. I mean, real love—just loving another human being for for for, for a lifetime—is an amazing thing. To grow old with a person, people don't have the patience anymore. Just to to be with a person, to go through the trials and tribulations of marriage and things. Even children. So many people aren't having children anymore. They don't want the hassle of children, and and so I think cultural renewal for me would be based in a, a renewal of the family. You know, the, a renewal of, of 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 just loving, just having a loving center in your being, that you transmit that to other people. Uh, but I really think beauty is something, and language is part of it. Just the beauty of language, poetry. We've lost. Every civilization has honored poets, and and, and, not and, ours. <laughs> and, and yeah. our civilization, you know, it's just amazing what passes for poetry. Now, and I'm not, <laughs> I'm, I, I'm not, I, you know, I, I understand, you know... Pe-
0: the Nobel Prize <laughs> Committee's judgment. You know, I'm a Bob Dylan fan, <laughs> so
3: I'm going to say that was one... Um, I'll, I'll make an exception for that. I am a Bob Dylan fan. Um, and you know he had some interesting lines um, uh, with with time rusted compass blades Aladdin and his lamp sit with utopian hermit monks side saddle on the golden calf and of all their promise of of paradise you will not hear a laugh all except inside the gates of Eden it's a very beautiful pretty good beautiful statement because uh, time rusted compass blades that's like religion you know their compass but they're also harmful and their time rusted. They've been around for a long time and they, they're, they're not polished or honed anymore. And Aladdin in his lamp, Islam, sits with utopian, utopian hermit monks, Christianity, side saddle on the golden calf, Judaism. And of all their promises of paradise, you know each one's claiming paradise is ours, you will not hear a laugh. People are taking these things very seriously, all except inside the gates of Eden.
0: Well, I want to say 60 a- seconds. amen, hallelujah, uh, to what, uh, to what uh, my brother said there. 52 seconds. <laughs> okay. Uh, restoration of the integrity of education. Restoration of the integrity of the family. Restoration of the integrity of language uh, and of decency and of uh, decorum, of entertainment and of journalism and uh, news media. Uh, all of those, I think, are essential uh, aspects of cultural renewal. Uh, historians are fond of breaking up the epochs, the ages into the age of this, the age of that. They frequently say that the medieval period was the age of faith, where faith was the standard by which everything was uh, judged. And the Enlightenment was the age of reason, or the age of science, where everything had to be tested by science, or reason for its validity, Or well, if the Medieval period is the age of faith and if the modern, the, the Enlightenment period was the age of reason, what is our period? What age do we live in? And I'm afraid, regrettably from my point of view, we live, live in the age of feeling, where we think that a well-lived life is a life about feeling good, achieving satisfactions, getting what you want, getting more of what you want. It's me-generation ideology that has now become the dominant understanding. And that reduces fundamental concepts, great fundamental, essential fundamental concepts like love to trivial things where love becomes a feeling, an emotion rather than what previous generations knew love to be, which is the active willing of the good of the other for the sake of the other love in that sense is self-sacrificial we those of us who are christians understand jesus is the ultimate model of self-sacrificial love it's not me 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 getting 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 wanting satisfactions it's giving it's being self-giving it's being self emptying it's willing the good of the other for the sake of the other and if we can only create an ethos or move in the direction of creating an ethos where that is what our understanding of love is, of respect and the other notions that are cognate to it. If, that's, if we can just get that in place, that will become the driver of a renewal of our culture.
2: Great. Well, join me in, in thanking.
1: Find more content like this on veritas.org and be sure to follow the Veritas Forum on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.